3: Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wilson-Croft, and it's been another, another incredible week of Premier League football. Another 9-0 win in the top flight. It's almost commonplace these days. Uh, What on earth happened at Old Trafford? We'll dissect all the events between Manchester United and Southampton. After 68 unbeaten games at Anfield, Liverpool have lost back-to-back home games. That leaves their title defence hanging on by a thread, but can their new signings save their season? And Ellen Road is once again again the scene of end-to-end entertainment all that and more to come over the next hour or so and to help me through it all james restall jonathan northcroft and gregor robertson how are you doing guys
0: very well hugh how are you
3: i'm very well you know team doesn't win 9-0 all the time
0: But, it is, <laughs> but it is, when it does
3: happen no not the first time but when it does happen you know it's nice to see yourself back up there amongst the record breakers that's all i can say about it you know but It's one of those, I don't think we read too much into it. We'll talk about it uh, in a little bit more detail because um, a lot of people, Manchester United fans especially, saying, oh my word, they keep talking about VAR. They're not talking about how brilliant we were. And I think it was one of those games where it was more of a a recipe of a multitude of factors that meant Manchester United, including their very good play, were able to score nine goals because... um, I feel it's an anomaly. I don't think they'll rock up at Everton at the weekend and score five. Let's call it that. So uh, I'm not reading too much into it, although it was a, a manic, a crazy night. As soon as the second goal went in a, a red card after what, 80 seconds to the youngster Jankovic. And then you, you were already thinking at that point in time, I've got to make that out of 20 to one bet, nine nil. You know, a lot of people were saying it could happen again. And it did. Johnny, what on earth in your opinion happened? <laughs> I'm slightly amused, um, <clears throat> Hugh, that that you're finding ways to
1: suggest that um, it doesn't mean anything for Manchester United and that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is still rubbish and it's still all uh, a <laughs> so, yeah, un- terrible. Yeah. <laughs> enjoy it, enjoy it. Um, I did, I did, I, I promise. Mean, I'm, I mean, yeah, good, I'm glad you did. It, obviously, the Jankovic sending off had a huge impact. Um, but as Solskjaer said afterwards, there's plenty of games where there's a sending off the other team camps and, and it's hard to break them down. You have to say that United were absolutely superb in the way they went about doing that job. I mean, you know, one of the things I've read about recently is that crossing is dead. Well, it, you know, the, the quality of United's crossing was a huge factor. Um, it was quality balls from out wide. Uh, they did, you know, they got round the sides, they stretched Southampton all over the place and, and the deliveries were brilliant. Um, I don't think it is an anomaly. I think you know, United are a team who we know have got extremely good attacking options and against maybe all the teams except the, the very best, they can use those options. They've been doing it you know for a year now. And when you've got Martial coming off the bench, when you've got Greenwood, Bruno, when you've got um, Rashford, um, you can hurt teams. And and Cavani, of course, Cavani's movement was exceptional. So you United just used their weaponry really, really well. I mean, I do wonder whether there's a factor as well with Southampton, where a team doesn't get beaten nine nil twice without there being, you know, some some link. They're not random events, and I do wonder if the the positive approach that Hassan Huttel's got, and the fact that it's a high energy game that he plays, means that when it does start to go wrong, it's not a team that's programmed to kind of sit in and take stock, you know, they just keep going, a bit like a Bielsa, Bielsa's Leeds. But, you know, when they when they then are down to 10 men, that high energy game's a lot more difficult to play. Um, and there was a naivety about them. Um, there was a sort of refusal just to, just to kind of change the way they were playing. So that, that probably had a factor as well, but you had to say United just had a very, very good night. I, I Whether, you know, being serious, yes, maybe it doesn't mean that they're then going to go and win those big games because it had nothing to do with those big games that they that, that play, but but
3: they are probably the best team apart from Man City at beating the rest and they showed it. Not an anomaly, says Jonathan Northcroft. So um, I can't wait for the next 9 nil this season uh, from Man United, you know, plenty of goals to come. Gregor, what, what, what did you make of it? Did we learn anything about Manchester United because of this result?
0: Sorry, Johnny. I don't think we did really know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just think, you know, there'd be a lot of people who were purring about the fullbacks and how, they, you know, Wambasaka got forward and Shaw was crossing, another one was getting the other end of it. When I'm, when you go down, the opposition go down to 10 men, it's like a dream for a fullback. You think, this is us. We, you know, we have got basically no responsibilities going that way. Boom, up we go, we're wingers now. And we saw that and they were excellent. And it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of... The period when Manchester United were going behind so often and we spoke about this before and the pressure's off and you're liberated and you see them in full flow and that's what we saw we saw that after how many seconds was it the the sending off inside two minutes whatever and then when you know there's three it's three the third goal is an own goal as well it's first from Southampton's perspective it could not have been it was like the most demoralizing first Two minutes and then half an hour of a game, and you're just dreading the rest of the game. To be brutally honest, so I, you know, I think that Johnny's made a good point. To be fair, about it's like they maybe don't really have a plan B. They have kind of tailored Southampton have tailored the game a little bit this season, not quite as intense and up and at them and you know, in the opposition's faces. I I think that's a common trend with every team really in the Premier League this season. But Southampton and. Hasn't all spoken about. We've been trying to be a little bit more patient and uh, measured in in our play and in our pressing. But I think he's right. I think Johnny's right. I think when that when that goes out the window, what what are they? What, so they're not really a team who are who are built to to sit in and soak up the pressure. <laughs> We've seen that obviously <laughs> with two nine right, nil. No, so, but still, I, I don't know. I just think it was one of those weird and wacky games, and I don't think yes, Luke Shaw is 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 looking like he's in the form of his Manchester United career. I will give it, definitely, that's absolutely true. And he was, he had a brilliant first half. Um, but then, they, you know, then they scored three goals in the last three minutes. Um, I just think it was one of those mad days. And from Southampton's perspective, one that they need to kind of forget very quickly once again.
3: James, d- d- does the Southampton boss, Ralph Hasenet, will have to take some responsibility here, you know, Losing nine nil twice in two seasons—you thought you might have learnt your lesson the first time.
2: Um, I, I think he's the he, he's 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 the most highly rated manager to lose two games. So to to lose two games so heavily that actually I don't think it damages his reputation that much because in the in the it, it's almost like you've got these two these two random kind of almost anomalous results. But then the whole bigger story of what he's achieved and what he's shaped there. Is actually quite remarkable, and and I mean, I I think one I do think uh, the lack of fans in the grounds is 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 a big part of this because we saw Crystal Palace um, against Liverpool, and we've seen uh, which was seven nil. I do think there is a kind of I do think there is a kind of almost. Games can devolve into almost training exercises at times. I've, I've spoke to I spoke to an Everton fan who who got in for one of the games where they were allowed two thousand fans. I went into a League Two game where there were two thousand fans, but because the ground's smaller, it almost feels like you've got a kind of you've got an atmosphere there. Two thousand fans in a in a in a vast cavernous stadium in the Premier League. Uh, this fan was telling me it was just like watching training. It was like an open training session. The intensity was completely different, and I think there's a it, it can be quite easy to kind of almost when things are going against you so much, you're not getting that kind of roar from the crowd to kind of build you up again and, and go again. Um so I think that was a big part of it as well. I think interestingly that both both nine nils did have kind of parallels in that there was an early red card in both. I think um I think you guys are absolutely right about how their kind of high octane style of play where you've got four players rushing a rushing an opponent and trying to harry them is is so draining that a, when you're down to 10 men, B when you've had the injury problems that they've got at the moment, and C you've then got the kind of almost sort of the the, the general lack of confidence. I think that's going to hit them. They can defend. We showed they've they showed in that brilliant victory they ground out against Liverpool um, a few weeks ago that they, they they can execute a plan to defend well against a team that's going to have lots of the ball. But um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was a kind of an anomalous result. I'm going back to your question um Going back to your question, Hugh, on on Hassan uh, I weirdly, I think it's a it's a mark of the incredible job that he has done. That um, I mean, I, I laughed when I saw someone on Twitter say, "Oh, the manager's got to take the pressure for this, and surely he's going to feel the heat now that because they've lost nine nil twice." No, I don't. I don't. Don't buy that at all.
3: Well, especially if you lose nine nil once the first time and the club's okay with it. I mean. Can't be that bad a result the second time around, can it? Um, uh, look, the game and the, the reaction to the game um, in, in many quarters was about VAR once again. Um, for me, I, 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 was, I, I, I thought it was absolutely disgraceful. The sending off of Bednarek um, for what, for me, as a Manchester United fan, by the way, was a clear dive by Anthony Martial. But it wasn't just that. It was the way in which it was executed The referee said it's a penalty, fair enough. VAR checks it. VAR watched it about 18 times. Clearly couldn't tell whether there was an error and asked the referee to come and have a look at the screen. So after 18 times, if you still don't know, clearly nothing is clear or obvious about the decision either way. And so there's no real reason to get Mike Dean over to the screen. But nonetheless, he went over. He saw the replay three times and then the screen froze. And he couldn't see it. Puts his finger to his ear, has a brief conversation, runs back to the pitch, and decides that this decision, which the VAR couldn't tell was a clear foul, clearly, or they wouldn't have got Mike Dean over, was definitely a clear foul and a straight red card. I thought it was unbelievable to send a player off if there's that level of doubt from the officials themselves. Um, Johnny, was it the worst use of VAR ever?
1: I mean, maybe, but there's a, wor- there's a worst use every game. I mean, uh, without, without, without going into it, I hate it. We, what we've got is a deadly cocktail between VAR and uh, the rewriting of football's laws under David Ellery um, to make them ever more pernickety and sort of inhuman, as it were. You know, almost sort of like small print type laws. And this triple jeopardy law has been rewritten um, to have a very strict definition that unless a player is playing the ball um, when they commit a foul then it's deemed as a deliberate foul and in a red card, in a sending off situation you would you'd, you'd be sent, sent off for it. Um, so you know, as we know, accidentally clipping somebody when you're not going for the ball is classed as deliberate by this narrow definition that's got nothing to do with common sense and everything to do with, with, with David Ellery, I think. And then you put in a VAR, which as I've said on here before, takes away the human element of decision making, takes away the subjectivity that's always been part of football refereeing and tries to make football into a, a mathematical matter of fact. And the, the worst thing about that whole process was that the VAR and the referees worked the letter of what they were supposed to do you know it wasn't a malfunction of the system it wasn't a malfunction of the refereeing you know it's a difficult decision in real time i'm sure you know mike dean saw it was a very good dive but i think marshall did dive but it was one of those clever dives jamie vardy style where you manufacture what looks like a tiny bit of contact and it happened quickly dean's behind him he has to make a call one way or the other, so he calls that it's a it's a foul the the replays were so inconclusive that he couldn't go against his original decision. And then you have to apply the David Ellery definition of what a deliberate foul is. Um, And you follow it through and you get to that red card, which, you know, you then have Bednarek walking off the pitch going, even Martial said that it wasn't a foul. Common sense tells you one thing, the process we've got in place led us to another, and this is happening all the time. Maybe it was the worst, but this is happening game by game.
0: I hate the 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 kind of that 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 sticking your leg out to buy a a foul that's become so commonplace and I think it's it's really awkward this because as Johnny said, you're look the, the referees have to go by the letter of the law but the the laws aren't fit for purpose and we've said this many times this season and you've got to take each incident in a holistic kind of view you can't you can't look at the the incident, and then look at the laws and think. Well, is he, you know, is he, is bro- he breached that law? Or is he, is he kind of okay in that one? Because you look at, you look at the, just look at the challenge, just look at it. And from my point of view, that's a dive. So, it, it, I don't know how he can. It shouldn't even really be in a penalty I don't think. And then, you know, we'll, we'll come and talk talk about Louise. And I think that's slightly Arsenal and Wolves. I think you know that's slightly different because you've got to look at. How how the player is punished for for basically stopping a a clear goal scoring opportunity, and it has to be you know that has to be a a punishment for that. I I really basically I don't like the double jeopardy rule at at all. Really, I don't. I think I think if someone is is preventing a clear goal scoring opportunity and it's that blatant, then they should be sent off. I don't think it matters whether there was what the intent was. I think if there's contact and it's clear and it's a foul. I don't think it really matters. The t- intent doesn't really matter. It's not, you know, Bed- Bednarek tried to pull out and it's not the fact that he tried to pull out. That's That doesn't matter to me. It's the fact that Martial was the one who initiate was one trying to initiate the contact. So it doesn't matter what, what the defender's intent is. Forget that. It's what, it, look at the challenge. Look at, look at the contact and how it came about and give the decision based on that.
3: Just quickly, while you mentioned David Luiz, do you think that was, a penalty and a red card.
0: I thought about this quite long and hard. I th- I think it was because there was contact, and and you could say he could have stayed on his feet, but he's got the one more stride to take before he strikes the ball. And if he misses that and he doesn't go down, and you know this is the reality of modern football now as well. You do have to go down to try and get these to to, to be given a penalty. And if he doesn't, as I say, and he's off balance and he shoots and it's saved or he hits it wide, what do wolves get? What do, you know? So. Again, Luis didn't intend intend to contact him. He tried to. I've done that so many times myself when a winger's running across you, and you try and like you're holding your arms up and you're almost scooping your your backside out of the way and like whatever you can just to kind of pause in time for a moment to allow them to run across. And he's not done it quite enough. He saw it. Arteta's. I don't know what he was looking at. You saw that. You did see the little clip. So it, in that situation, that that area of the pitch, he's got because he went down because the player went down he's got to be sent off what do you think (laughs) it's not an easy one there's no consensus in this that's the thing about it it's very hard
3: the thing that was most confusing though gregor while you say that is that and i think this was highlighted on match of the day is that if both of these defenders wipe the striker out trying to get the ball that's the law they don't don't get straight red cards exactly but that then makes the law an ass basically
0: absolutely because, because look at the incident and, and, it, and, it's, and its surroundings as a whole. Forget, you know, I know that it's not the referee's fault, but the, the law has to be written so that, that is what referees do. Very quickly though, and you're bang
1: on Gregor, but you cannot look at the incident as a whole with VAR. Because var
2: picks on it changes it, point, the look of it as but well. it doesn't yeah, applies to everything
0: that's why we're in an absolute wormhole here and it's never going to end until var is gone
2: it really is a vicious circle because basically the what the video technology has done has shown up the inadequacy of the laws so you kind of so the laws have to be rewritten to fit with the technology the technology then shows up more problems with more incidents i mean we, we've not talked about the fact that Che adams had a Perfectly good goal disallowed as well. You know, uh, I mean that that was uh, the, again. This is this is another problem with the offside the offside law has been is, has been completely rendered a kind of uh, a yes or no decision based on tiny lines that are being drawn that we know the cameras are not completely accurate enough to to to, to pick up the exact moment. The second thing as well, just on the on the um, the Marshall dive, I do think there's. Um, and you'll, you'll you'll hate me for using the um, the, the band words clear and obvious, but the problem with the, the problem with that definition is that my, all Mike Dean needs to look for is is there something there which proves that I'm right to have given a penalty, so he can isolate that to a small bit of contact, which I agree with you completely, Gregor. Marshall completely initiates the contact. But in but in terms of Mike Dean applying the laws there, it almost seems. And I you know I don't want to sound like I'm being too harsh on Mike Dean, but it's almost like a like to use Frank Lampard's phrase from the other week. It's a little bit of confirmation bias. If you've given the penalty, you don't want to be the one going and admitting I've I've made a mistake. And how few how how few times I think Graham Scott's done it once. I think I, I can't remember that maybe one or two times the referee has actually gone over to the screen and said, I have actually made a mistake here. I'll overturn it. I think it's very it, – it, we, we, people want the referees to go over to the monitor to kind of – almost so that they can be seen to be making the decision. But it's kind of it's, – it's, it's proving very difficult for them to actually overturn a decision they've already made. Had it been – again, had it been had – had, had Mike Dean not given a penalty, would he have then given a penalty having watched that footage back? I don't know. No chance, exactly.
3: I'm not sure officiating has become any clearer with VAR at the moment, which I think was the whole point. Um, and I think that's probably the worst thing about it right now. I mean, I saw Gabriel Jesus last night against Burnley not get a penalty when Tarkovsky had a chop at his ankle. And of course, as you mentioned, James, that that Che Adams offside was. I mean, that is that that's not why the offside rule was invented. Before we had VAR, I mean, decisions like that, I don't think anyone complains about that on a Sunday league pitch and they shouldn't be in the Premier League either, to be frank. Although if you apply that to tackles, then that's probably the wrong way of looking at it. Um, But I did want to talk about what happened after that game at Old Trafford with Southampton's request for Mike Dean and Lee Mason to not officiate any of their games in the near future because I think that is the wrong thing. That, That cannot happen. Johnny, what do you think? I think
1: everyone would love Lee Mason not to officiate their games. But, you know, Stanley, you know, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, Lee. But, um, I think, no, I, I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, it smacks to me, actually, of, of Celtic. Um, I'm not saying that to upset you, Gregor, but you know what I'm talking about. Celtic um, in Scotland have been doing this for quite a few years, um, trying to choose who referees their matches. And a, cu- a club shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed to do it. It is, we- it is weird, though, that Mason and Dean refereed two games for Southampton in a row. I
0: have to say, I just remember that I did a journeyman about uh, Kilmarnock. Scotland is the best soap opera with these types of things. <laughs> so I went up to Kilmarnock versus Aberdeen for a journeyman column. And there were three red cards in the game. I think two were for Kilmarnock. It was like, it was like a game of murder ball. It was awful, It was, but it's so engrossing, right? And then after the game, uh, Steve Clark was the manager at the time and he said, you know, there's the huddle. It's all so close as well. Everybody's huddled around him and and he started saying that he basically accused the referee, and I can't remember his name, unfortunately, but the referee's dad played for, for Kilmarnock. <laughs> so he's saying, he's not, He's, the pressure's too much for him. I don't think he should ever be allowed to referee a Kilmarnock. Game. So he's essentially questioning the guy, the guy's kind of professional integrity because his dad had played 500 games for Kilmarnock in the past. So yeah, there's plenty of that in Scotland, absolutely. I, and I know what you mean about Celtic, uh, Johnny.
3: But James, I, I don't know if you agree with this. I, I, it's a, it's a terrible precedent to, you know. Even if you're going to go back and have your conversations, look, we know their review, the, the performances, they will ask for observations from the club. You know, if you want the referees to get better, at least be productive about it, you know? Give your view and say, this this needs to improve, that needs to improve. To write them off and say, I don't want them coming back to our ground anymore or officiating our games anymore. That's That, for me, is a very, very dangerous precedent because clubs of this size, you know, we... we we, Sergio Ramos, let's put it this way: was talking last week, praising the refereeing in England, saying he watches Premier League matches and he wishes that Spain had referees like that. Because if we think we we're pedantic here, you know, you you watch some of the games across Europe. I mean, it's they, they're stopping them from enjoying the game as professionals. How many red
2: cards do we think Sergio Ramos would have got in his career if he'd had English refs? <laughs> um. I wonder if that, that came into his He wouldn't thinking. have got anywhere near as many if he was in England. I can, I can assure you of that. They should, they should come up with a statistic, shouldn't they? Expected red cards. and that. Yeah, quite good. <laughs> Earlier in the season when um, David Coote was uh, the VAR uh, in the Liverpool-Everton game in which, um, in which Van Dijk suffered his season-ending injury, I think the following week, David Coote had been put on a Liverpool game and they actually, the Premier League themselves, Rode back and took him off the game and moved him, and I think that is. I think it. it, I know there's there. You know, clubs obviously clubs shouldn't be able to call the shots in this way. I think it just needs a bit of common sense from PGMOL, and when they're allocating the referees, they need. Obviously, these internal discussions must happen, and they must think actually that's yeah. Let's let's keep these referees away from that team for a couple of weeks and let the heat die down.
1: No, no, no. But, But but something just occurred to me, James. The referees must be shattered. They must be knackered. Yeah. at the moment. Yeah, we're talking about we're talking about players being tired. They must be. They must be tired. Man, it must be hard for the PGMOl to. I don't know. Just just basically get enough troops on the ground at the moment because with games every two or three days. So if there's some funny old decisions, then mental tiredness might be a factor.
0: The last time we spoke about this, we've spoken about it several times now. <laughs> you said to me, What is a good referee? I remember you asked and I always said, courage of the convictions. Someone who's really confident in making the they must have no confidence right now. They must be thinking, you know, everything's been questioned and poured over with a fine tooth comb and then sometimes I'm gonna to have to go over to a screen and check whether I made the balls up. So it's not it's not an easy situation for anyone involved, to be honest. But the the calling out of referees, I mean Nuno did it. Uh, a few weeks back as well basically saying someone wasn't good enough Lee Mason Uh, Lee Mason indeed yeah I just don't (laughs) want to I don't want to I don't want to stick the knife any further to Lee Mason I wasn't going to name him Um, but it's not it's not a good look
3: Uh, We will see if the situation changes, both officiating on the field uh, and with VAR, but it was another one of those examples which I think they're going to have to run through in the summer and use as a a trial example on how not (laughs) to use VAR. Um, Let's reflect on the game next at Elland Road. Fantastic match once again, as they always are, involving Leeds United. The result didn't go the way they would have wanted. They were beaten at home by Everton, who actually won away at Leeds, for just the second time in their last forty visits, which is remarkable. Uh, James Leeds impressive again. Sixty-four percent possession. They had twenty-six shots in the game in total. Both sides, both keepers, very busy. But it was Leeds defending that let them down once again. It's um, it's it's
2: it's proving a bit of a recurring theme with with Leeds, um, and I think it's it is just an it's a, it is a natural consequence of the way they play. Um, I for one wouldn't want them to change a thing because I think it's I think it's great it's just great fun and I, I think I could, I could very easily turn around and say oh they should become more solid and they should try and grind out results and they but they but they but they they're brilliant value I mean I I watched their game um I I, I was watching their their game against Crawley in the FA Cup a few weeks ago and thinking this this could easily be a nailed on victory for Crawley um and 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 it, and it and it was and and it and it's because they're so unpredictable. And I mean, I watched, I I remember, I remember seeing some, I remember just before they came up and watching kind of a, a a highlights reel of their defending on YouTube. And there was a moment where they were like pinging the ball across their own box to the point that the goalkeeper basically almost just ran over the goalkeeper's foot and into the goal because it was kind of, it was happening at such kind of high speed and and, and it was like, it was, it was just complete chaos, but it's like it, when it, all clicks and it works they're completely unplayable and it kind of it reflects in their you know it, reflect, it reflects in the position they are on the table and the fact that they are kind of I think only a few weeks ago I think they scored and conceded ridiculous numbers of goals I think it was 30 each before they played Spurs so it was you know it's it's, uh, it's great I, I yeah br- keep, bring it on keep 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 the, keep on with the kamikaze defending.
3: Do you agree Johnny the most fun team in Premier League history kamikaze is the way forward? <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
2: they're they're
1: they're up there. I was thinking about this. Uh, they haven't I mean, they haven't played a bad game this season in terms of watchability. Fulham are good watch, by the way. As well, there's there's quite a few teams at the moment that are.
0: Oh yeah, the the, I was thinking this today. That there's not usually the bottom half of the table is defined by fear. And there's so many teams now who are really kind of proactive and or at least they're a good watch. Villa, Villa are a great watch. West Ham are turning into a great watch. This is a good season, like in all the circumstances as well. There are a lot of teams who are really, really good to watch and Leeds are... I'd have to say Leeds are right up there as well.
3: So it turns out all all the footballers in the Premier League are actually very good, but it's <laughs> us when we go. It's us when we go to games that put them off, basically. And so if we stay at home forever, they'll all be brilliant. That's that's a way forward.
1: No, I think you, you ask who the most are they the most fun team? I mean, I mean they, they are a lot of fun, but I think I think I'd have to say Newcastle under Kevin Keegan are still the epitome of 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 just sheer soap opera. Joy and tears, all in one match, kind of entertainment. You know that that season when um, they were the best attacking force, but they couldn't quite defend. So what happens? Faustino Espria turns up in a fur coat in February to to join the ranks. You know that was just incredible story, incredible soap opera, and fitted in with the whole Saint James's Park, the Geordie narrative. So I think Leeds, have, and then Ozzy Ardeela's Spurs were also just ludicrous. Side to 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 watch for for a while, but Leeds are they're kind of in that category, aren't they? Of that, just uh, play they just play football like um like like, like we'd all kind of like to if you know we're fantasised but we're managers and we'd all like to have that kind of just flair and, and and guts and then the reality is we'd all be
3: different except for those outliers like Bielsa. Gregor, do we get the chance to criticise Leeds yet? Or?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that first goal was a joke. It was, it was bizarre. Really, everyone seemed to be looking at one another, and then nobody, did, nobody did anything. And like, and Sigurdsson strolled into the box and Cooper and was kind of looking around, and so I think Phillips was as well as see the third one and and uh, Strujic, So it's like. They were all just looking at each other, thinking, what, "What's going on here?"
2: Even Gilfie looked a bit surprised. To even be like, oh, oh, "How's this chance befallen me?" Yeah, I,
0: do, I think you know, like they're all good footballers. I, I think, I think, if you've been honest though, I think three out of probably three out of Leeds back four aren't good enough defenders, really, for the level. To be brutally honest, and I think, I think Luke Ayling is is a Premier League player. Absolutely, and the others are good footballers. Liam Cooper, he's got a great left foot, and he can play these diagonal balls. And he's, he he made errors like that in the championship. He did it, you know. He uh, defending isn't—I is, don't think it's his biggest strength, to be honest. And for a centre half, that's a little bit of a worry. So, uh, <laughs> but he's got a lovely left foot, and it's important. He's important to the way that Leeds build, you know, build attacking moves. And 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 the same Alioski. Alioski was kind of a winger, really, and now he's playing left back, and he's a bit. He's a bit of a loose cannon sometimes, so I think it's just <laughs> we've just got to grow used to it and kind of. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certainly enjoying it. And the way they, the way they create kind of overloads down either flank is just brilliant to watch. Players kind of three threes kind of pour down to down three players pour down one one wing and play little triangles and runs and make moves and it just looks like you know be, be bewildering to try and defend against because. It's unusual. It's unusual for that many players to kind of flood one one side of the pitch. Um, so yeah, thoroughly enjoyed that. The second half of that game was 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 just an absolute joy to watch.
3: Robin Olsen saving uh, Everton at times as Absolutely. well. Yeah, gr- great from Leeds. But I-, I just wonder what it's like in the mindset of a Leeds player at the moment because you look at the dugout and I mean it is it is very much. Marcelo Bielsa who seems to be constantly at the end of his tether and you're thinking, you ask us to play like this, you ask us to risk absolutely everything and then someone makes an error and you, you you look at us as if we were being disowned from the family. You know, the black sheep, we've been turned away from the Christmas dinner or something. I mean, it's just like, it's heartbreaking to watch. But if they continue like this, um, that we will love them in the Premier League for, for years to come. It just, I think it depends... I said this before, I think I said it when Marcelo Bielsa took the job, you know, he can be one of those characters where, who knows, you know, one day he'll probably just walk into the office and say, I've had enough. And then you wonder who could fill his boots because it's such a unique style of, of management, coaching and a way of way of playing as well. Who knows, Pep Guardiola might take over. He loves Marcelo so much. They might have the money by then.
0: We should also say that Everton defended brilliantly. Like, I know you mentioned Olsen there, but... Yeah, Ben Godfrey was Mina great. Godfrey as well. Yeah, and everything to the box because Leeds, you know, despite all the football they play, they they hurl some balls in the box and Bamford's is a is a good target for them. Um, I thought, yeah, they defended brilliantly in second half, and you know, still had a bit of a threat on the counter on the counter as well. So, yeah, I mean, Everton and another team you throw into the mix this season, they're they're good to watch at their best, and um, certainly made for a brilliant brilliant spectacle. Everton
3: against Manchester United at the weekend, since we've mentioned those two sides. Is that going to be one of the crackers this weekend, Johnny?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll be there, actually. I mean, sadly, when you get to my age and you get a bit sort of weathered, you just think about how late you're going to be on the motorway on the way back. But um, it's going to be great. It's going to be really good. Um, I, I mean, two teams in, in, in great form, um, two master tacticians at work um, of course um and um yeah, united need to win that game to um uh to maintain the little bit of momentum. they pick back up against southampton um but everton are right on the edge now of that top
3: four um and we'll think we'll think they've got a chance, good game going to be a good one. Um, Hopefully from my perspective, Manchester United come through, but um, I think it's going to be one of the more interesting games this weekend. We'll talk about another one of those shortly as well. Manchester City and Liverpool going up against one another is going to be a cracker this weekend. Up next, we will talk Liverpool, not just their defeat, but also uh, some of the new signings who've come in. But remember, if you enjoy the podcast, you can give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever you use. Just make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode. You can get it on all of your devices as well so sign up today get one month free just go online search the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started
1: as you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy
0: there's more to iphone
3: Now, before we discuss Liverpool's defeat to Brighton and Anfield in more detail, by the way, it's a result that leaves their hopes of a successful title defence in a pretty precarious position, Uh, we wanted to assess their recent transfer activity. Defensive injuries were a big concern, and Jurgen Klopp got two defenders on the final day of the transfer window. 20-year-old Schalke defender Ozan Kabak on loan with an option to buy, and 25-year-old Ben Davies from Preston. Northern football correspondent for The Times Paul Joyce joins me now, and and Paul Liverpool have been praised for their recruitment in recent years. What was the thinking behind these two deals?
4: Well, I think, I think they've known they've needed to buy a centre-half, basically from the moment Van Dijk got injured, which was back in October. Then you had that situation exacerbated by um, the injury to Joe Gomez. So I think what they've done is they've been working on um, drawing up a list of potential targets with this summer in mind, I don't necessarily think they were looking to press the button in January. And I think that's reflected in the calibre of the player that they've gone for. Um, I think what changed it was the injury to to obviously Joel Matip at Tottenham that puts him out for the season. The injury that Fabinho's had. And I think it made them realise that if they have one more injury with, you know, they'd be in real trouble. So I think in essence, what they were looking for in in January was low risk when it became clear that certain targets wouldn't be available because clubs aren't willing to sell at the last minute or not willing to sell without putting a, a £20 million premium on it for, for Liverpool to buy because the to pay sorry because they know Liverpool are desperate. So I think if you look at look at the sort of names that have come out there was an approach for a car at Marseille a Croatian defender and uh, sources in France have said that Liverpool bid 23 million euros for him it seems like that was the only deal that they were prepared to do permanently but because it was so late in the day Marseille couldn't have a replacement um, and so rebuffed that from there they've gone to do a low-key deal in Ben Davis from Preston who was out of contract this summer was due to sign a pre-contract with with, with Celtic, Liverpool because Celtic and they've paid five hundred thousand for him with another one million on on top, dependent on progress, um his progress and their progress. So that's a very low risk deal, really, because they'll always get the money back in the future if if. Davis wants to move on if he doesn't think that the pathway is there for him. I think the other deal is interesting with Quebec at Schalke is that Liverpool weren't prepared to do that deal with an obligation to buy. So when the interest first emerged in Germany on Monday morning that, that this was a deal that they'd been in contact with Schalke about, the initial reports were that it was an obligate a loan with an obligation to buy for eighteen million, and that just didn't seem like the type of business that Liverpool do. The Schalke player obviously wasn't first choice because they tried to get Coletta Car previously. So to commit themselves to eighteen million at the end of a transfer window on a player who uh, they they must have some doubts about just didn't seem right to me, and it, and it subsequently came. Out that they would have walked away from the deal if there'd been an obligation to buy and that they wanted the option, which suits them in a lot of ways because it's basically a £1 million loan fee and you get to try the player for five months now, see what he's like. If you like him, you can, you can activate the option to buy him for £18 million in the summer. So again, that's another, in my view, it's another low-risk deal that doesn't um, expose Liverpool over the long term The onus is very much on the player to impress, make the most of this opportunity he's got, Um, but it doesn't lock Liverpool into anything. Now, the flip side of that is obviously what is in that for Schalke, who, who, you know, why would they agree to that deal? Well, they're probably going to get relegated. Um, They're at the bottom of the table now. They've had a terrible season. Uh, Kabak, I think, is probably one of their higher earners. So they get money off, off the wage bill in the short term. They get a loan fee. I think there's financial problems at Shelka as well. And I think what they'll be thinking is that he has quite a good reputation, the player, so we'll get, we will be able to sell him in the summer. But now he's got the potential to be in the shop window for five months. Either they get the money from Liverpool or if Liverpool don't proceed, uh, proceed with the deal, does he do enough that he alerts other clubs to his availability and, and they... They go and do something.
3: It's an interesting one for them. I guess that means that the that, that next part of my question will be two-pronged in that you mentioned Joe Gomez and Virgil van Dyke. Is that an indication that they'll be out for the season? And also for Liverpool fans, should they expect the club to go shopping for a premium centre-back in the summer?
4: Um, well, I think I think the, van, the nature of the van Dyke and Gomez injuries meant it was always unlikely that they would be back this season. Um, and that's been compounded now by the absence of Massip to the end of next season. I think what we've seen in this modern day day and age we we see players doing um doing the recovery programs and posting it on social media. So we see Jurgen, uh, so we see Virgil van Dijk doing lots of exercises. He's in Dubai at the moment. We see him doing keepy up. He's on a pitch and we we think that he's Ahead of schedule and can shave months off his rehab rehabilitation, but the reality is that they both suffered very serious injuries, and that was always going to take six, seven months minimum for them to come back, and that was that. That coincided with the end of the season, so yeah, I think Jurgen Klopp said this week it'll be a miracle if if um, if Van Dijk is back this season um, and Gomez is sort of ruptured kneecap was also a very serious injury. Um, so it would be, again, I think it would be a miracle for, for him as well to be back this season. As regards to signing a high-profile player in the summer, I think that's probably going to be a, a priority. They need a first choice uh, or, they, or they need strengthening that area. I think they took a little bit of a gamble in not replacing David and Lovren last summer Given the fitness record that Matip has had in recent seasons, he's not been a reliable first team player for them. So, I think they already left themselves a little bit short. Now they've effectively got three, the the first three choice defenders, coming back to fitness in pre season at the same time. Now we know from when players have long term injuries that sometimes they suffer um, niggles as a result of that in the coming. In, in, the, in the weeks after the comeback, it's it's very unusual for a player to come back from a long-term injury and, and slot seamlessly back into the team and never have any problems. So I think they will be mindful that they've got three players coming back at the same time from serious, serious problems. And there is a necessity there to strengthen defensively, whether it's Quebec, you know, we have to see over the next five months, whether they go back to Coletta Carr, is an interesting one uh, because that deal probably only didn't go through because Marseille didn't have any time to to buy a replacement, and that tells us that Liverpool weren't planning to do a deal in January as well. So yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting. Five months. I think Liverpool will still will still be compiling a list of players before they signed Van Dijk. They had a short list of forty which they whittled down and whittled down to a final list of three or four, one of which was obviously Van Dijk and Laporte at Manchester City was on that list as well. So that's, that's how sort of thorough, thorough they are in the recruitment process and, and that will be the same way again. They won't, they won't change anything.
3: And to what happened on the pitch, Paul, I mean, look, it's that old adage, you wait ages for a bus, two come along at once, 68 matches unbeaten at home, now back-to-back defeats at Anfield. What has gone wrong, if, if anything has gone wrong, really, with Liverpool's form? Or are they just victims of circumstance? What do you think?
4: I think there's, no, there's, there's obviously been a drop in levels. Um, I think confidence has been affected. But I think the bottom line is that the injuries this season have been unprecedented. I mean, they've been without you know half a dozen players for two thirds of the matches this season. Um, you know, Thiago had a long injury. Jota, Van Dijk, Gomez, Allison's been in and out. Fabinho, Henderson, Cater. Uh, so I think we can look for all all the answers in the world but I think it fundamentally comes down to to that problem that they've not had enough of the best players on the pitch together at the same time and there'll be games when they can override that and there'll be games when that trips them up and the consistency isn't there and that that and so you get a win against West Ham on Sunday and three days later you get a sort of below-par performance against Brighton when and and, and Klopp mentioned afterwards that he thought the players were mentally fatigued as well and and that's because he's not been able to rotate enough, probably because he doesn't trust some of the other players enough in the squad. So some of the players will only come in as as it feels like as a last resort. Um, But I think we also have to give Brighton a lot of credit as well because Graham Potter's gone in there you know, and tried to change a style and, and instil a new way of playing into the club, while also fighting against relegation when he first came in. And, and it's been a steady progress. And I think we're starting to see um, some of the rewards of, of the work that he's been doing. Obviously, they beat Tottenham on, on Sunday. They follow it up with what was probably the best result of his reign. And although they don't create lots and lots of chances, I think he's got them very well organised defensively. They try and play through through the thirds of the pitch, through to the through to the front man. And I think they're a team that's evolved very carefully. I think it's been noticeable. I think they've cons- they've kept four clean sheets for the first time in the top flight these last four games, and, and prior to that, they lost one 0 to Manchester City. I think it's been noticeable that that Guardiola referenced um, Potter. I think he called him the best English coach um, around at the moment, and and Klopp was very sort of fulsome in his praise um, going into the game as well. So we we obviously see the sort of narrative of the big team falling, and how has this happened? Well, injuries partly explain that. A lack of confidence too, but I think we also have to give Brighton a lot of credit because we're starting to see um, the rewards of the work that that Graham Potter has, has put in. And, you know, I think there'll be a few other teams between now and the end of the season that won't relish facing Brighton.
3: Our thanks there to Paul Joyce. Yep, it was a remarkable game at Anfield last night. After wins against Spurs and West Ham away from home, Liverpool outplayed at times by a very spirited Brighton side. They they had real attacking intent. They had uh, defensive solidarity as well. James, maybe Pep was right. Graham Potter's a genius.
2: I'm always delighted when um, A, Graham Potter gets praise and B, Brighton get excellent results like this. I've um, I've been following Graham Potter's career since uh, he was managing in the fourth division in Sweden. Um, I remember ringing him up for a for a piece on Brits that were working abroad in football, and um, he was talking about how you know Roy, Roy Hodgson when he went to Sweden um, kind of brought the kind of flat back four to Sweden and kind of all the teams in Sweden started playing that way, and he basically thought. Well, I'm going to make it three at the back, and so he got the, he got Ostersons playing that way, and it kind of culminated with that brilliant result against Arsenal in the uh, in the Europa League, um, which kind of put him very much in the shop window for the Swansea job, and and now Brighton and Swansea had been following his his progress for for a number of years before they brought him over as as their manager, um, and he'd kind of been one. that I think they 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 had kind of been keeping tabs on him and waiting for the right time to almost bring him over from Sweden. They'd, they'd had him. Very much on their radar. Um, I, I think he's. A, I think he's. A, I think he's a brilliant coach. I think Brighton have. There's a really interesting debate to be had about sort of style and substance with Brighton because it, it's kind of uh, the numbers look very similar to sort of how the, the output they were getting from Chris Hughton beforehand, but there don't ever seem to be the same kind of grumblings about his progress and whether he's ever under pressure or whether he's in danger. I think Brighton fans are. A, I think they are sort of there have been some grumblings this season, but there's never never the same kind of amount of well oh, we need to sack the manager and, and change things because I think as a club Brighton are very happy with the style of football he's he's producing. Um and I think with what they really miss is a lot of times is, is end product. They they have a lot of the ball and they they just can't finish the chances they create. Um so I, I I'm delighted to see him do well. I also have a little bit of a personal interest in last night's goal scorer because um, I remember seeing him come through at Leighton Orient, a very bad time for the club when uh, he was developed. He, he, came, he was he was part of a very promising um, year for academy graduates. Um, there's a there's a player called Josh Karoma who is doing really well at Huddersfield. Um, he was part of that youth team. Um, Michael Oberfemi who plays for Southampton was in that youth team. And um, basically the club were in such dire financial straits and um, senior players were unavailable that they decided for the rest of that season in League 2, they knew they were going down to the conference, so they just played all these brilliant young players and um, Alzati played, I think he played 12 games, scored a brilliant goal against Newport in a 4-0 win which I think was the, the pretty much their only win between sort of mid-Feb and the end of the season and off the back of those those performances, um, the move to Brighton um, and, uh, and 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 it's, it, it's so pleasing to see um, someone who was kind of really thrown into quite a bad situation and had to kind of find his feet in senior football really, really quickly took his chance in league two at the time. And he's now reaping the rewards having, you think he's been on loan to Swindon? Am I right, Gregor? I think he's been, he, he's, um, he's, he's, he's developed the right way. And, you know, he's, I, I, it was so pleasing on a personal level to see him score uh, the winner yesterday.
3: I was one of the ones slightly taken aback, James, when Graham Potter was given, I think a four year extension, about three months into the job at Brighton. And they, they there are they were, I think, at the point at the time about a point above the relegation zone. But it seems like that faith is being rewarded. It, it's clear they've got a great style of play. Clearly, it's not perfect, but they are definitely building. And Potter, of course, in his first job in the top flight, is also getting better. And, and that that experience is also showing.
2: Absolutely. Um, it's. I think as a manager, I think he can have more confidence in himself to keep playing this way given the backing that he's got. I think it's the the reason I think the reason he's able to stick to his guns and and not panic and I mean I I, I can't remember a more unflustered Premier League manager he just never seems like he's ever whenever he speaks it's always very matter of fact it's always very calm He, he never seems to kind of feel the pressure and I think that is reflected on the fact that he has the complete backing of the club that he's at and he knows his track record shows that he can build really attractive teams um, in in sometimes quite trying circumstances. So I I I think yeah I I, I think it's it's remarkable.
0: He's quite it's quite kind of uh, you know that whole story that that played out in, with with uh, over in, over in Sweden and he's you know there was all all these slightly wacky methods about creating a team culture and you know putting on ballet uh, ballet performances Lake. and things yeah. like that. Yeah. It doesn't tie with the guy you see in front of the. It doesn't marry with the guy you see in front of the, the cameras after each game. As you say, he's so measured and calm and it doesn't, you know, he doesn't look like up to be honest and he clearly is. He doesn't look that as inspirational, but clearly he's someone who the, the players enjoy playing for. And I mean, it, they've been really good to watch this season. And I look I back at the results and I think all but four other games have been decided by one goal. So there was Leicester 3-0 in December, Everton, there was a couple of games around the end of September, October, Everton and Man United and the opening day against Chelsea. And Otherwise, every game has been really tight. And if you look at the like their XG as well, I think they're 13 goals behind their expected goals. So the expected goals is 37 and they should score 24 goals. The, if you look at expect, you know, they do XG differential tables, they would be third behind City and Liverpool. Their numbers are a joke. Like they they've got, they create chances, they're not scoring them, and they're de- they're very good at the back. And you know, if you look at their 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 back three, you've got people who could quite easily be playing for England. I think White could play for England in the future. I'd be surprised if they actually keep him by beyond the summer. He's a brilliant player and some you know on loan at least last season. Dunk has been magnificent for them, and Webster has grown in stature all the time. Um so I really like Busuma as well. I think of, of late like he's been as a holding midfielder who is capable. who has got the ability to kind of spring attacks as well and play forward. He's not just a, a destroyer. He's been brilliant for them. So they, they're, they're really good to watch, and it, I'm glad that it's come. It's kind of coming good now. They've obviously got to keep it going, and they're still they're still not entirely clear of of, uh, of the bottom three. But I think it's. I'm glad to see that they've come good because the football they play. It seemed like. So we're only a kind of fraction away from from turning a lot of good performances into good results.
2: It's a really interesting discussion. James Gearbrand wrote quite a thought-provoking column last week about kind of the idea of of almost coaching as a as a as a as a kind of as a profession being seen almost as belittling to, to players when they retire. You either you either become a pundit or you become a manager, but actually working as a coach is kind of it's seen as this kind of halfway house that not many too many people sort of want to do and what you lack like, oh, ambition you lack ambition yeah and, and what always struck me about Graham Potter is I think he retired relatively early as a player he 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 he. he I think I think he said to me when I, when I first spoke to him he said what is the point in trying to pick up one year contracts in league two in the conference when I can go and study coaching he went into the university system and went into university football and and he, and he learned how to be a coach and developed his own thinking on how he would coach teams. And it was from there and through working as a coach for a number of years, was then recommended for his first job in Sweden, which he took and developed from there. And I, I, I think this is almost, it, it, he's, it's almost a, it, what we're seeing from Brighton now is almost a 10, 15 year development of, a, of, a, of, of, of one coach and his own personal development.
1: It's the kind of background we're used to seeing foreign coaches have, but not English ones. I mean, it's the Jose Mourinho sort of background, the the Thomas Tuchel. I mean, you know, these guys were he, he, Potter was an ex player. He was a, he was a, he was a, had a decent career. I think he did play in the Premier League once um, for Stoke, but devoted himself to coaching. And it's about the power of doing things differently. I mean, one thing that Brighton have done um, is is put their academy players in. They've got, I think, they've got the most academy minutes on the pitch this year. You know, they got rid of an experienced goalkeeper and put in a young keeper that they've developed after getting him from Spain at the age of 15. You look at Dan Byrne playing as a left wing-back. I mean, a less likely wing-back you'll never see. (laughs) How, thinking outside the box and seeing his potential... Um, there as you know he's turned he's not the greatest football in the world but he's a clever player he's always he's always in a good position and of course he's got that 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 aerial height at the back post so you know mixing up a little bit using that kind of thing as well as a possession football um, it's just a it's a really well thought out project if you can put it that way and a really well thought out team and I think the only thing that they're lacking really is, is is a deadly striker Um, If they had like a Danny Ings or something, I think they'd be way further up the table given the quality of the football.
3: Just a a little bit of credit as well to Graham Potter's wife, Rachel. I remember reading about uh, her deciding to give up her business in York, a Pilates business, to move to Sweden with him. And I read an interview with him as well, talking about what a big decision that was for them. It's all worked out. I'm sure that new contract at Brighton's going to be all worth it as well and the football uh, to come. Who knows? Look, we always talk about future England managers. Graham Potter could go right to the top as well. He's terrific in the words uh, of Harry Redknapp. Um, But let's quickly talk about... um, Liverpool because there's a massive game for them this weekend I think we just have to reflect I I know we spoke about how they have played but that game last night did underline a few of the issues that they've had recently for me firstly the patience of their play I think it was evident going into that final third that where Liverpool used to work the ball and work the ball and work the ball until Robertson or Alexander-Arnold had the chance to whip in a ball basically you know free of any sort of closing down they could choose their man they could let the players in the box have a great look at the ball coming in, just attack it. You know, there was a lot of them just flipping the ball into the box, seeing what happened last night. And that is not a Jurgen Klopp Liverpool side. Um, Maybe they are tired. And I I know Jurgen Klopp referred to some fatigue from his team as well. But um, I I also think he's been reserved in many ways. You know, I, I was so surprised to see James Milner, Start ahead of Curtis Jones last night because of the impact Curtis Jones had against West Ham at the weekend. For example, you know, he brought Origi on early on in terms of really I don't think anyone expected him to come on at all last night after his performance at the weekend. It, it, it sort of strikes me as not not really a desperate point for him, but just trying to get through. A difficult period for the club, balancing injuries, rotation, and I think some tiredness as well. And in the end, performance has slightly dropped off. Um, but going up against the Manchester City side, who've been absolutely brilliant, um, I think it's what, eight eight wins in a row in the Premier League um, at the moment, maybe more, just look unbeatable at times. Gregor, it's going to be a really interesting game in terms of Liverpool's approach because I think they'd be happy with a point, but going up against Manchester City in full flow—I mean, it's it, you, you can't exactly play for a point against a team like that.
0: No, City are kind of all the the cogs are, are whirring and their the the engines purring. <laughs> they look ominously ominously good now. I always think when City are scoring those goals, where it ball is flashed across the six-yard box and someone is tapping into empty net quite kind of consistently, that means that uh, City are, are kind of. Finding their their top form, so I, I, it's it's difficult with with Liverpool at the moment. I just you know there's a lot of everything you're saying is true. I think in that they look kind of they look like they're struggling for a spark of inspiration. I just when you look at the players that I have on the sidelines at the moment, I just don't ma- think it matters who they who you are if you have your three best centre halves injured and Jota out and Manny out. And Fabinho out, the team is not as good. It's not. It's and then confidence is drained a little bit you know, they're, they're just. It's been a. It's been a kind of bit of a cycle for them, and and they they lose that kind of that sheen of invincibility that they had for so long. That's gone. That's long gone now. And it's quite hard to kind of to kick start the season again, unless you know there's a new arrival and somebody comes in. If if one of the new uh, defenders, one of the new arrivals, comes in and is like a Looks like a big presence, and he's going to be a a good sign for them. That that could be a boost, and it allows Henderson to go back in midfield or Fabinho. So they need something to spark it. I don't. I honestly don't know what it's going to be just now because, as you say, you're right that they're, they're not the same attacking. They're not quite as dynamic going forward anymore. It is more. It is more, more patient. A part of that, I think, is. And a lot, it's Thiago in midfield as well. I think a lot of play goes through him, and he's as opposed to having the fullbacks playing as like Liverpool's almost like Liverpool's number number tens sometimes, um, and supplying the front three. So there's been there's so many little little kind of aspects that have kind of snowballed to Liverpool at the moment, and it is it needs something to spark it for them. But you know, a, a game against Manchester City who are in uh, in shimmering form at the moment um it's not going to be the, it's not going to be the easiest time to do it
3: james look if if liverpool lose at the weekend to manchester city they will go 10 points behind the leaders and city will still have a game in hand so it's not just the biggest game of the season for liverpool in many ways the biggest game of the season for manchester city do you think biggest game of the season full stop maybe
2: reminds me Hugh of uh, that game in the uh, in the season when uh, man city pit Liverpool to the title by a point, and the game that was the game that ultimately decided it was that I think it was a two-one win for Manchester City in early January. Um, and had Liverpool won that match, they would have gone ten points clear. Um, now we have seen; I mean, Johnny uh, Johnny brought up Keegan and Newcastle earlier. We have seen teams blow big leads in the Premier League before, but psychologically, going ten and then potentially thirteen points uh, behind is is a, is a huge blow, given that. There's, I just can't see with the defence and the changes they keep having to make with their defence. It's not like this is a, it's not like this is a, a full strength Liverpool team that's just misfiring, and they could, you know, it's just they're in a bad patch. They're, Klopp is having to constantly pull rabbits out of hats every week to try and make the team work. Really, um, given the, the problems he's had, I, I, I personally think it's been a huge, it's been hugely detrimental to the team having to play uh, Henderson in defence. Um, i think they they miss so much of his linking and his energy in midfield um and 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 there have been times where as an organizer i think at set pieces he's not been as kind of commanding or as kind of just not got the same kind of um uh skill set as the as as central defenders who've been doing that their whole careers i think i think actually i think henderson could become a very good center half if he carries on playing there but it's 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 very much Square pegs in round holes, and it's and it's and it's it it, it, it means that I think they it, it, it is must win territory for them this weekend because otherwise I think psychologically that gap is just
3: is just too big. Johnny, do you think Liverpool can rise to the challenge of, of a city team as as solid as hard to score against as we've probably ever seen them in the Premier League right now?
4: They, look, they can.
1: They're still they're still Liverpool. They're still a a, a collection of of. Um, winners I think that they're, they're a team that, that in those bigger games have probably been better um, it's, so it's it's possible that they, 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 you know they have followed bad performances with, with with good ones this season so it's possible but do I expect it? No I think City as Greg has said are just an incredible form um, Liverpool have got too many problems I think for you to have too much hope for the for, for them um, to to solve them all as I say it's possible just because of who they are and because you can't write them off but you know I think the title race is going to be over on Sunday quite honestly. I think City will win
0: and that'll be it. People as well are kind of saying you know why have Liverpool not got the backups? But when you lose three three players who are your best three central defenders there's no team, there is no team in Europe really that can cope with that and not be affected. Really, really seriously, and there've been other issues as well. So, I just you know, it, when you the other thing is, it's just presence too. That he had, he was such a commanding presence, Van Dijk, and, and then Matip was brilliant alongside him, and Gomez's you know his, his pace and the way that they play too. They're they they expose their defenders. So. You need, to be a, you need to have a pretty kind of extraordinary skill set to be a defender for Liverpool. And the players that they're putting in there at the moment, they don't. I mean, Phillips, for the, for the goal against Brighton, was kind of, you know, threw a leg at it. And it was just a fractional decision. It's not, you know, it wasn't a glaring error. It was just if he might have been able to stand up and, or his body position was different and he could turn and get a block on the shorts. And then it's just these little fractional things that are, you know, that, that make a big difference now. Do you think
3: uh, uh, Johnny has already shared with us his views on the weekend? Do you, Gregor, think that Liverpool can win it?
0: I can't. I just can't see it. Really, the way that City are playing at the moment, and I've gone through all the problems with Liverpool. So, you know, I, th- I would agree. I think they would they would be delighted with a with a draw, to be honest, and just to keep that kind of to keep them within sight, and to hope to be able to kind of to, to, to ride over read through some of these problems and and uh, get back into into some kind of rhythm
2: james full house uh it's hard it's hard to see liverpool winning this one um i can see it i could i can see that i could definitely see a draw um but i mean the the thing that has been most impressive about manchester city as you guys have said is the fact that uh they they've, they've, they've got their swagger back but they're doing it they're almost like a they're almost like a, a machine now they're the way that they are just so impregnable. Um, and, and, and the fact, I think I looked at their results at their nine wins in January, which is the most because it's because of the schedule and the way that we're playing so much football at the moment, but it's it's the, it's the first time a team in the history of English football has won nine consecutive matches in a single month. And they'd only, they only conceded two goals in that spell. One of them was, uh, was against Cheltenham in the FA cup. Um, and that was that, and that was the only time they've conceded without Ruben Diaz on the pitch. So Ruben, Ruben, you know, Ruben Diaz has been immense. But also, and the other one was a Callum Hudson-Odoi consolation goal, having, you know, with with, with Chelsea three 0 down and completely out of the game. So I just, it, it's, it, and we we've seen in recent weeks how Liverpool have found it so difficult to score, um, and they're they they're not attacking with the same fluidity and coherent cohesiveness co- co- as they have done in. Last season, so I just yeah, I think it's either at best for Liverpool a draw, um, uh, at worst for them a defeat, and I look forward to this coming
3: back and biting me next
2: week.
0: <laughs> all of us, all of us. I was going to say
3: thirteen uh, straight wins for Manchester City as well, an unbeaten run of twenty matches. um Look, they've been absolutely brilliant, but I think after what we've all said. They're probably going to lose 3-1 at the weekend if <laughs> they're Liverpool's back. We will review (laughs) that game at the weekend between Liverpool and Manchester City on Monday but clearly City fans we've cursed you you can blame us uh, if you're beaten at the weekend remember uh, by the way if you're enjoying the podcast for the first time to subscribe uh, you will not miss any of the episodes throughout the season you can also get yourself a digital subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times and get more of our award winning journalism including Paul Joyce's views on Liverpool right now Uh, just sign up today get one month free go online The times.co.uk forward slash the game to get started.
1: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening.
2: Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double-tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10
4: to 11.
1: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to
4: iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns